It's all about reversals and connections this week on The Backdrop. That's right, everybody. Curtis here. This is The Backdrop, and we are looking at chapters 30 to 32 of Jeremiah this week. Although we spent a decent amount of time on chapter 32 this Sunday, so we'll be looking mostly at 30 and 31 here, which has connections to all sorts of passages in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and is full of reversals. The biggest reversal of all being that it is sometimes called the Book of Comfort, which is very much not what you would have said about the book of Jeremiah up until this point. So what we are going to do today is to point out some of the many reversals that show up in these passages, as well as some of the other passages of scripture that are connected to it. Neither is going to be comprehensive because there are just too many of them, but there will be enough to give you a decent sense of what's going on along the way. First, let's run through some of the reversals that we find here. I'll comment some on some of these and others I'll just mention to give you the sense of just how many of them there are. The theme is set right off the bat in chapter 30, when God says in verse 3, Because there, days are coming, Yahweh's words, when I shall restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, Yahweh has said. In 38, God says that on that day, a declaration of Yahweh armies, I will break its yoke from on your neck and tear off your straps. This is in contrast to the word from chapter 28, when God tells Jeremiah to make a wooden yoke, and then when that one gets broken by the false prophet Hananiah, to make an unbreakable iron yoke to represent the fate that has come to Judah. Chapter 30 verse 9 mentions that the people will serve Yahweh their God, which they definitely have not been doing so far in this book, and that God will set up David their king. Whereas in chapter 22 verse 30, God said that none of the current king, King Jeconiah's offspring of David's line, would ever sit on the throne. Then verse 10 tells the people not to be afraid and not to shatter, as opposed to the pottery jar that Jeremiah was told to shatter in chapter 19. Chapter 30 verses 12 through 17 gives us a reversal within the verses themselves, which move from in the beginning talking about there being no possible healing for the wounds of the people of Israel and no one who cares for them. And then in the end of these verses, God says, I will bring up healing for you and I will cure you from your injuries. We also see in these verses, the reversals extending to the other nations. In verse 16, it says, therefore, all the people who are consuming you will be consumed and all your foes, all of them will go into captivity. Your plunderers will become plunder, and all who despoiled you I will give as spoil. Verse 18 speaks of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the ruin of which has come up more times than I can remember in this book. Verses 19 and 20 talk about the people returning, as compared again to the vast number of times the people being exiled had been brought up in the book. Verse 21 speaks of a ruler who has come from within the people as opposed to a foreign ruler, as they have now, who will draw near to God, in contrast to the many kings Jeremiah has castigated for having not drawn near to God. Verse 22 has maybe the most poignant example, and one that serves as something of a refrain in this passage. You'll be a people for me, and I will be a God for you. The restoration of the covenant, the intimate relationship that has been broken up until now. (gasps) 
(sighs) So that's chapter 30. On to 31. Verses 3 and 4 depict Israel once more as a bride adorned for her wedding day. This is a reversal of some of the opening images of the book where Israel was a faithless wife who had gone after other lovers abandoning her husband. Verse 6 says, Come, let us go up to Zion, to Yahweh our God, emphasizing the presence of God in Zion, in Jerusalem, in contrast with verses like chapter 8, verse 19, that wonder whether Yahweh even is in Zion anymore. Verse 8 reverses geography. Instead of from the north being a phrase of terror, it's a phrase of restoration. As the people come back from the north, that has been the place enemy armies come from up until now. Also in verse 8, the vulnerable, the pregnant, and the lame are especially mentioned as returning. Whereas in previous chapters, the vulnerable are especially mentioned as victims of the terror befalling the nation as a whole. In verse 9, the people pray, and Yahweh listens, in contrast to chapter 11, verse 14, when Yahweh says, I won't be listening at the time they call on me. Then later in verse 9, God promises to bring the people, who earlier we saw digging leaky cisterns in the dry dirt, to bring them to streams of water. Verses 10 and 11 say the nations are hearing about the joy of God restoring Jacob, whereas a theme up until now has been that the nations will hear of the destruction of Jerusalem and shake their heads at the shame of it all. In verses 12 and 13, mourning is turned into celebration. The social joys and festivals that Jeremiah was commanded to avoid in chapter 16 will return. In verses 15 to 17, a verse depicting Rachel, which symbolically at least means the mother of all Israel, weeping over her lost children. And this is a verse that the Gospels repurposed to describe the sorrow following King Herod's murder of the baby boys after Jesus' birth. But in these verses, she is being told not to weep anymore because your children will return to their territory. In verse 19, Israel is pictured as turning back and repenting, feeling shame at the way that they had wandered away. And these are all things God has been pleading for the people to do, but they have, up until now, refused. Verse 22 depicts Israel as a virgin daughter once again, after the word whore appeared approximately 763 times, I think, in the first uh, chapters of the book. But then the verse ends with a saying of some sort that no one seems to actually know what to do with. In fact, if you were to go to Bible Gateway or somewhere else and compare translations of the final phrase of verse 22, you'd get any number of different translations. Literally, it says that God is doing a new thing. A woman surrounds a man. No one's quite sure how exactly this is a new thing. Some people say this is talking about like a physical surrounding like protection Some think it's sexual. I once had a professor who joked something along the lines of that in Hebrew and other ancient Semitic languages, one of the challenges in translation is that every word has four meanings. Its main meaning, the opposite of its main meaning, something to do with food, and something to do with sex. So there you go. But in any event, this verse seems to be a saying or a proverb of some sort that's meant to indicate a new impossible thing, a reversal of the usual course of events. Verse 25 says that God is saturating the weary person and filling everyone who languishes. Verse 33 says that God is going to engrave God's words upon the minds of the people, as opposed to the sin that was engraved there in chapter 17, verse 1. 
And then verses 35 and 36 use the solidity and reliability of creation as proof that God will indeed make these things come to pass. In contrast with the undoing of creation that we saw in chapter 4, verses 23 to 26 and elsewhere. Whew. So it is safe to say that there is a theme here that we probably should pay attention to. God is doing a new thing, reversing the old, restoring the fortunes of God's people. It's as if Jeremiah combed through the whole book up until this point and intentionally wrote something to counter all the things he said thus far. I think we may have mentioned this before, but this is one of those themes that if you're looking for it is all the way through the Bible. Reversal. The low being raised up and the high being brought low. Mourning being turned into rejoicing. The first will be last and the last will be first. The songs of Mary and Elizabeth that they sing in the stories of Jesus' birth are full of these kinds of ideas. There aren't many themes in scripture that show up more often, really. This is apparently a characteristic that is consistently part of God's character. And it plays out in Jeremiah too. For as long as complacent Israel is riding high and their rich and powerful leaders are presiding over an unjust society, they are marked for destruction, being brought low. But as soon as the bringing low has been accomplished, well, now there's a new message. God's impulse is to raise them up again. Again, this is so common in the Bible, but it is so hard to really let this concept, this worldview, sink into our bones. It goes counter to everything about how the world usually works. But as we've seen in Jeremiah, God often is in that position of going against everything about how the world usually works. Now, before we get to a few of the intra-biblical connections that show up in these chapters, a couple quick notes. First, in the second half of verse 17, the word Zion is used almost like a curse, an epitaph, because they've called you outcast. It's Zion. There's no one inquiring about you. This is a play on words. Zion is a Hebrew word itself. Sion, basically S-I-Y-O-N. But there's another Hebrew word, Sion, S-A-Y-O-N. And that word means wasteland. In fact, it's possible that the roots of the two words are connected. Remember from last week, they share the three core consonants, S-Y-N. The word Zion comes from the name of a Jebusite fortress that David conquers in 2 Samuel 5 that was in or near what became Jerusalem. But it's possible that the fortress was named Zion in its pre-David times because the area around was a wasteland, or it might be related to the word for castle. We aren't really sure. In any event, this verse is saying it's Zion, that is, a wasteland. There's no one inquiring about you. Who would inquire after a wasteland like Israel? Only a God who makes the last to be first, I suppose. And then chapter 31 ends, verses 38 to 40, naming a whole bunch of places in the city that are being rebuilt. They begin in the northeast corner of Jerusalem and then move around the city basically counterclockwise. It'd be like if someone was prophesying about the rebuilding of the Pomona Valley and said, from Rancho Cucamonga to Claremont to Glendora to Diamond Bar to Chino Hills to Eastvale to Ontario. Now, let's cycle back through these chapters again, this time for some of the connections with other passages in the Bible that are there. Some of these we've already sort of implied in the reversals, but there's a ton more here. And I'm only going to mention a few for now. In chapter 30, verse 13, there's a reference to Israel's allies, sometimes translated lovers, that they have disregarded Israel and don't inquire of you anymore. 
This is a reference back to the early chapters of the book when Jeremiah compared Israel's idolatry and political alliances to a wife going after other lovers. Jeremiah said they were empty, they were no gods, and that there was no life there. And now that has come to pass. These allies, these lovers, when Israel really needs them, they show themselves for what they truly are, empty, like a puff of wind. Then there's the refrain that I've mentioned before that shows up in several places in these chapters, but first in chapter 30, verse 22. You will be a people for me, and I will be a God for you. These are covenant words, establishing the intimate relationship of God's people with Yahweh. There are echoes of God's words to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7, where it says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you through their generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then it echoes again in God's words to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. I am Yahweh. I will take you out from under the burdens of Egypt and I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great retributions. And I will take you to me as a people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who takes you out from under the burdens of Egypt. So these words in Jeremiah 30 and 31 are echoes of the two main covenants that establish the people of God as the people of God. And this is significant because to all appearances for the people in exile, these covenants have been broken. They have violated the terms, and now God has every right to have brought the consequences of those violations on them and then walk away from the agreement entirely. But Jeremiah is saying that isn't the type of God Yahweh is. The return from exile, Jeremiah has already said in this book, will be a new exodus, greater even than the one before, and, well, If the covenant from the old exodus has been broken, then a new exodus means a new covenant. And there's actually a precedent for this. In Exodus chapters 32 to 34, we get the story of what happens after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments on stones as a marker of this covenant that they have made with one another. Moses comes down the mountain and the people have already broken it by building a golden calf as an idol. And if you remember, Moses smashes the stones as a symbol of this broken covenant. And then Moses pleads with God on behalf of the people to give them a second chance. But in contrast in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, if you remember, has been on a couple of occasions forbidden from praying on behalf of the people. He is not allowed to be the broker of a new restored covenant like Moses was. Why? Because this time, The new covenant is going to be all God's doing, all of God's initiative. The scholar Christopher Wright makes the point in discussing this idea of the new covenant and the promises that accompany it in these chapters, that it might be helpful to think about the new covenant promises in three different time horizons, because there's something going on at all three at once. It's not that one is real and the others aren't. They're all real manifestations of God's faithfulness to the covenant. First, there's the actual restoration of Israel in the land after the 70-ish years of exile in Babylon. Second, there's the new covenant as inaugurated by Jesus. And then third, there's the ultimate fulfillment that comes when Jesus returns and the resurrection and restoration of all creation occurs. Aspects of the new covenant happened in the 7th century BC when the exiles came back. 
Aspects of it happened in and through Jesus's resurrection, and aspects of it won't fully happen until Jesus returns. It's not that any one of those is the real fulfillment of the prophecies. It's that they all are fulfillments of the prophecies, and Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment amongst the many other ways that God kept God's promises. And then now let's look briefly at a couple of ways that the New Testament used these chapters to talk about what happened in and through Jesus. First, this is just like a trivia question answer here. The longest single quotation of the Old Testament by the New Testament happens in Hebrews 8, which quotes in full Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34. And this is part of the discussion in Hebrews of Jesus being the high priest who allows for us to access God directly, unmediated by a sacrificial system or human priests. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the means by which the words of Jeremiah come true, wherein the word of God is written on each person's mind, and we can all know God intimately. And then, as we said this Sunday, the words of Jesus at the Last Supper draw from this passage. The words New Covenant are only here in the Old Testament. But Jesus also pulls in a couple of other references to the Old Testament, including the institution of the first covenant in Exodus 24, verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people, and he said, Look, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has sealed with you over all these words. And then also the words of Isaiah 53, verse 12, about a suffering servant that says, For he laid himself bare to death, and was counted among the wrongdoers, and it is he who bore the offense, or sins, of many, and interceded for wrongdoers. So you put those three together and you get, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one who sums up the story of God with Israel, and brings that story to its fulfillment, where through Israel, by which I mean Jesus, as the representative of Israel, through Israel, God accomplished all God said would be accomplished through Israel from the beginning, where all the nations would be blessed and welcomed into the family of God. Because God may be a God of reversals, but God's plans do not get reversed. And even if they don't get accomplished exactly the way it seems like they will or the way we might expect them to, they do get accomplished exactly the way God says they will. And I think that's enough for today's backdrop. Join us this Sunday, 9 a.m. Pacific for Church on Zoom, and you can find a link to that on our website. And I hope you found this episode helpful. We will be back next week looking at chapters 34 to 37 and saving chapter 33 for the week following that. But until then, I hope you have a great week. Bye.